iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and welcome back to the Apple Store Soho for another exciting special event. Uh, tonight, we bring Richard Ayer, director of the new film, The Other Man, here for our Meet the Filmmaker uh, talk series. Meet the Filmmaker is recorded as a podcast, which is available on iTunes, and it brings uh, here to the store some of today's top filmmakers uh, to share their works with you and engage in a discussion and Q&A as well. Uh, in a little bit, we'll be bringing Richard out to talk about the film with guest moderator James Bennett. Um, before we do that, please enjoy the trailer to this film. never wish you might be given the chance to sleep with someone else. Are you telling me something? I'm asking. I do love you, you know. If I didn't, I'd go. Go. Tell George I'm sorry for the baby. I will. Is that why she's gone? She did have a friend. Who is he? I have an email address. I want to know who he is. And I want an identity. I want to meet him. I want it to be a big surprise. Peter. Rafe. Shall we play the game out? Please. Well, he doesn't know who I am. You should be ashamed asking things like that about Mum. None of this we're doing is right, Dad. He stole my life! What did you find out about me? In prison? All of them. Who are you happiest with? You make a choice. I chose you. She's the only woman I could ever love. Losers are brilliant at making things pretty. He's monstrous. Just get rid of him, Dad, please! Where do I get a gun? She loved me. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, please welcome director Richard Ayer and our guest moderator from The Atlantic, James Bennett. Um, it's a uh, great honor for me to be here uh, this evening with uh, Sir Richard Ayer. He's uh, identified for purposes of this conversation as a filmmaker, but uh, the fact is he has worked in every medium really known to man, except video games, he tells me, and, and possibly ceramics. And it's hard to discern any particular pattern other than extraordinary success. His list of awards is almost as long as his list of productions. And his list of productions ranges from uh, The Crucible to Guys and Dolls to La Traviata to Mary Poppins um, uh, to Notes on a Scandal and uh, to the film we're here to talk about tonight, The Other Man. Um, I think Frank Rich, in the days you were running the National Theatre in London, referred to you as the most versatile producer in the English-speaking theatre. Um, well, he was a lover of hyperbole. And still is. Uh, I, uh, before we plunge in, I should say we're doing, this is a bit of a high-wire act tonight because this movie is a, a thriller of sorts, not in a, in a conventional sense, but... Uh, uh, the, the, the thrills derive from um, 
uh, revelations about the characters, what we learn about the characters, what the characters learn about themselves, and what they learn about each other, and so we're limited in what we can actually, how far we can go in this conversation. Um, but I'd like to begin with what drew you to the film in the first place? What, what is it about it? Uh, somebody suggested to me that I read a, a short story by a writer called Bernard Schlink, who is the author of The, the Reader, um, which uh, was released last year and, and had great success here. Uh, Bernard Schlink is a, a German author who is also, a, incidentally, uh, a professor, is a judge, high court judge, and a professor of jurisprudence. And he's, he kind of writes fiction in his part-time. And, and he's written three novels and, and uh, a collection of wonderful short stories called Flights of Love. And The Other Man was one of those short stories. And somebody said to me, uh, this would make a, a film. And I think often short stories make better films than novels because short stories you can expand in a film and novels you're always trying to cram uh, a huge amount of material into uh, a, a small space. And I was intrigued by the, uh, the, the proposition of the short story, which was essentially about uh, a marriage and about loss. And uh, I t turned the story into more of a thriller than... than uh, so the film is based on the short story, but has been very much turned on its head. Let's, I'd like to ask you about the, the, the central characters, really practically the only characters in the film because so much of the, of the storyline derives from who they are. And I wonder if you could begin maybe with a character of, of Peter played by Liam Neeson. He's, he's a, a kind of an austere fellow um, uh, with very few friends. Um, how, how would you describe him as a, as a person? Uh, I'd describe him as very emotionally recessed. Uh, he's, he guards his feelings, and part of what the film is about, it's, it's kind of hard to, to talk about this film. I haven't done it much in, in public, because the film itself is, a, is, as James said, a series of revelations, and I don't want to spoil it. In the, I'm, I'm this vain hope that everyone here will go and see the movie. Uh, but if I told you what it was all about, then the, seeing the movie would be less interesting. If you see the movie, you'll understand what I'm, what I'm saying. But um, this, uh, the character Liam Neeson plays is very guarded with his feelings uh, and uh, very, very uh, retentive. And part of the story of the film is a man who is taught how to feel, how to open up, how to allow his emotion, how to wear his heart on his sleeve. And there's, um, there's a relationship, strained relationship between him and his daughter that uh, comes together. Um, so they run on parallel lines and they come together uh, at the end of the, the film. And also he learns a lot about friendship and about marriage and about love. Can you talk a little bit about Rafe, the, the character played by Antonio Banderas? Um, yes. Uh, Antonio is, um, I mean, those of you who have seen only the Antonio of, of uh, Zorro and adventure pictures will not know the, the Antonio that I first saw in a film of uh, Pedro 
Almodovar, um, uh, one of his early films, and he's an actor of, of tremendous subtlety. The, there's, there's a sort of trick in the film that you think, or you're supposed to think, that he's one sort of person initially, and then you discover that he's another sort of person. Uh, he's... Um, the, the character he plays, uh, again, I'll spoil it if I tell you everything about yes, him. Yes, please but, don't. <laughs> but uh, all I can tell you everything about Antonio, who um, we, we filmed part of the, uh, the movie in um, Milan, and part of it is set in, in Italy. And when we were filming in a huge um, 19th century shopping center, a crowd of at least 3,000 people turned out to watch us filming because Zorro uh, was in the movie. And we had a great deal of trouble convincing the crowd that it would, was better for our purposes if they kept quiet and didn't shout out, Zorro, Zorro! So. And just to, just the, the third point of the triangle, uh, Lisa... Um, what kind of woman is she? Lisa is, is a woman who is, um, certainly at the beginning of the, the film, not what she, we discover she is. She's somebody who is charming, warm, uh, appears to be completely honest uh, and a loving person. And what we see at the beginning of the film uh, is... A, a picture of a very happy marriage of two entirely compatible people. It's, it's a, a good marriage. She's, all the film depends on... The film wouldn't work at all. If it does uh, work at all, it works because there are three very, very sophisticated actors. who There's not a huge amount of dialogue, particularly in the first half of the film. There are... There's maybe ten minutes of, of the movie which is without dialogue, a lot of which plays on Liam Neeson's face. And he has a, a, a fantastic ability, like all really wonderful film actors, to make you think you can go inside his head. Laura has, uh, and Antonio ha have the, the same ability. They're both... Um, I, work, I work more in the theatre than I work in film, and there's a characteristic of, of film acting as against theatre acting when you see, go to the theatre and see you want everything to be fast and, and zippy and, and kind of high energy and mercurial. When you, in, the, in, the, in film, you want feelings to travel very slowly across people's faces uh, and you want to, the actor to draw you in rather than be, be pushing at you. And these, these three actors are wonderful at that. Can you talk a little bit about how you got these, these actors to embrace their characters or come to understand their characters? How do you work with them um, in advance of, of production to develop a real affinity for who that person is supposed to be? Um, I'm, I guess because uh, I come from the theater, I like to rehearse. Um, I like actors. It's not true of all directors. Um, a lot of directors get very impatient with actors and are very uh, intolerant of actors. I was an actor myself and I like working, I like the company of actors and I like working with them and the good ones are very smart. Um, I like to rehearse, we rehearse for maybe 
10 days for this film. They had to learn to play chess. Uh, Laura had to learn quite a lot about the, the fashion industry. And we sit around and we talk, we read, we talk. Uh, and just so that um, when they start to shoot the film, they know a lot about the characters. And the, the job of an actor in film is to be spontaneous in a situation which denies spontaneity because an actor, you see an actor looking effortlessly spontaneous on screen, that's, that's a high skill, that's real craft because any film, however small scale, is still very labor intensive and the actors are surrounded by a crew, they have to do difficult things, they have to hit marks, they have to look in the right direction, they have to uh, take the light in a, in a particular way, they have to uh, say their lines in a, in a particular way. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very highly skilled craft. So I believe in preparing the actors for the moment when the camera is turning, and that moment they have to simulate spontaneity. So that's, that's the job of, of acting. A lot of us assume it sort of comes naturally. It comes, na you can't teach it, um, but it's, it's it, it, all actors, all good film actors prepare a lot, and some prepare in massive detail, uh, and um, the best ones come onto the set knowing as much as they can, they devour knowledge and research and and then it all it's like a uh, a, a a solution of a chemical and they, and they just you know can dip into that solution how do you think or do you think men and women will respond differently to this film um i know when we were making it the producers used to say well of course this is a woman's film uh i guess because it, it turns, I mean, it, it, it's a film partly about adultery, and we're so used to the to the notion of, of uh, um, adultery being uh, a man and and you know one, two, three women, um, and this turns it on its head. It's about a, a, a woman who has two lovers and finds it possible to live a life, I mean, I suppose the enigma at the heart of the film is the character of the woman who has lived a long time with a, uh, a husband happily, a child and uh, a lover of whom the, the husband is, is ignorant. And in some way, she's found it a, a sort of, um, that life compatible. Do you think of her as the strongest figure in the film? I think she's the person who knows herself best. Yes. Uh, um, I, I, it, it, it's, I've got to ask you one political question since it is the anniversary of, of September 11th, um, or a politically related question, which uh, in some ways your career, I mentioned Frank Rich before, he started out writing about theater, he now does politics mostly. You've kind of gone your arc has been the opposite. I mean, early on, you did a lot of political theater, and feel free to challenge the premise of this question. I may be completely wrong, but um, it seems you've become more and more preoccupied with 
uh, uh, themes of, of, of family and relationship. Um, is that is that fair to say? Is that is that? Um, I, I guess it is. I, I did uh, when I started off in the theatre. I did a lot of explicitly political uh, theatre, um, and I've certainly become preoccupied by film and theatre that is about uh, relationships, family, and just how how people function. Um, and as if I say that my favorite play is King Lear, which is the ultimate play about family life or dysfunctional family life, I'm interested in how people uh, get on together or fail to, to get on together. But, but uh, it, it's not quite true to say that I've turned my back on political theater. I've just done a play at the National Theater in London, which is about an election uh, in a, a, a first democratic election in an African country. And that's highly political in one sense, in, in that it's about the business of politics, but actually it's about, uh, a, it's a personal story about someone who is a passionate idealist who is unable to draw the line between being an observer and being a, a, a participant, which is, you know, at the center of a, a lot of our political dilemmas today. So I, I guess, you know, if you say I'm, I'm the director of Mary Poppins, yes, that's, that's true, which is, of course, about family as, as, as much as anything. I, was, I actually came across an interview with you in which you said you became interested in Mary Poppins because it was a movie about, a story about an unhappy family, and, uh, which I think is a very unusual way to think about Mary Poppins. A lot of other people would say it was a story about a singing nanny or a <laughs> you know, slightly well, cloying chimney sweep. I think the reason that, that it's, it survived, these are very brilliant stories uh, written by an Australian woman. Um, and uh, the reason it survived is precisely because it's about a, a, a dysfunctional, an unhappy family visited by some being who comes you know, intervene, some agent of goodness, and everybody somewhere within them, whether they can articulate it or not, wants at some stage in their life, you know, the flying nanny to come in and, and resolve their... I mean, it's, it's, it's generally childhood, but uh, it, the Mary Poppins is also about resolving an unhappy marriage. And, um, you know, there, sh there should be a lot, of, lot more flying nannies around. <laughs> But I was, I was, in this film particularly, in The Other Man, there is an element of, of, of uh, consciousness of class. I mean, there are sort of, the, I think there's, it's fair to say that woven into the picture is a, 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 a kind of a class consciousness to some of the characters. Yeah. Is that? Yes, that's absolutely true. It's quite, quite thinly layered. Uh, and um, it's, it's impossible to be British. I think, and not be acutely aware of class. It's something, you know, we're kind of marinated in it from, from birth, and uh, much more so than, than in this country, where, where you're aware of, of wealth, disparity of wealth, but class is something altogether more complicated and more mysterious. In this film, I mean, I don't know whether it appears whether it's clear from the film but I very much thought of 
uh, the Liam Neeson character as a self-made man who is essentially from a, a working class background, very similar to, to Liam's background, who uh, marries somebody from a different class and has a daughter who's been expensively privately educated. And so there is definitely uh, a rift, a, a gap between the, the two, the father and daughter, which is healed in the course of the film. And I'm going to ask one more, and then I think we have a, a clip, and then I'll open it up to questions from the, from the, from the floor. But um, uh, this is a, a, a movie based on a German short story directed by a British director with a multinational cast, um, an American woman in the, in, the, in, the, in, the key, in the key role. Do you think of it as a uh, European picture, as an American picture? The themes are, are universal, but do you think, uh, how do you think of, the, think of it? Do you know, I I, I'm very bad at, um, at thinking about genre. The last mm -hmm. film I did was um, Notes on a Scandal, which is the story of, of you know, the Judy Dench character obsessed with a, uh, a younger teacher. I don't know what genre, of, of, um, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's in the crazy teacher genre, whether that's, uh, you know, forbidden love or, or, or what. I, I, I guess I thought it was a European film in sensibility because it's clearly not a, a, a movie that is... Um, going to kind of headline the mouths, but it's. Uh, I hope that it's universally accessible. I guess that's always driving at not genre, but 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 sensibility and orientation, optimistic or pessimistic, or whether you think in those terms about um, Americanness and a, uh, and a British view of. I I, I certainly do in other people's work. I'm very very aware, and I'm very envious of many American characteristics, one of which is a sort of, seems to me optimism is in the DNA of the American sensibility, which is not true of, of British. Are there any questions? I was a, a little bit more about the culturalism, because it seems like, the, is that from the short story, and was it, and if not, was it intentional? The, the lover is the uh, Latin characters. Just if you want to speak to the cultural background of the different characters. Um, no, in, in the original short story, it's set in Germany. It's set in a small German town. The lover is... He has sort of characteristics of the Latin lover, but he's, in fact, he's, he's German. Um, and when I, I wrote this, the, the screenplay with a friend of mine... Um, who also I wrote Iris with. And we, we went through so many different stages of who the lover can be. And to some extent, it was, uh, I mean, certainly one of the versions before we approached Antonio was uh, a Latin, was, was a, a, a Spaniard. Um, but the casting of Antonio, Antonio became that character, if you like. Um, it could have been played, uh, he could have been English, he could have been Italian, uh, he could have been French. But I did want him to be from, a, to have a different sort of sensibility to, to, uh, to Liam's character. Um, the, interestingly, when I showed the film to Bernard Schlink, he was very, very uh, 
complementary. The thing that worried him was the optimism of the end. <laughs> and uh, because there's a sort of resolution at the end, in the short story, it's the beginning of a resolution. Uh, the, the short story ends with the, the protagonist, the Liam Neeson character, thinking, starting to, to sort of open up and realize how he'd lived his life and, and, you know, opening up to the world. And I just wanted to make it more explicit. But from Bernard Schlink's point of view, he felt that was sort of pushing it, I guess you'd say, Americanizing it. But I thought that it should have a positive ending. Uh, I've heard you say uh, that you weren't uh, a particularly good at, good actor, and you've talked a bit already this evening about what it, what it takes to make a great actor. What does it take to make a great director? Um, well, I was a bad actor because I, I can see with hindsight the director in me was much stronger than the actor. Uh, every actor has a sort of third eye, a kind of monitoring, um, a, a monitoring function when actors are acting really well, they look as though it's the most natural thing in the world. But of course, the good actors are calculating, you know, I'm moving that, I'm moving that, I'm saying that. I say that word a little louder, I say that word a little softer. It's, if, if you talk to, you know, in a take of a, of a film or uh, a performance on stage, if you talk to a good actor afterwards, they'll be able to tell you in extraordinary detail what they were doing and how they want to change it. And so with the really good actors, it's like working with really good musicians. You can say, you know, just could you accent that a little more? Could you move here a little more? Could you just you know, tip back in your chair a little when you say that, and they can take all that, uh, all that on board. Um, now, I couldn't. Uh, first of all, I couldn't do that as a, as an actor, and secondly, I was so aware of of what I was doing that uh, it just sort of negated the acting bit. So a director has to have. Uh, eyes in the back of their head. You have to have sort of 360 degree vision as a director. You have to be able to see everything uh, that's going on and take account of it and see what the essential element is. So you both, you work in detail. I mean, in great, you have to be absolutely specific. And that's the difference, I think, between good work and bad work is that the good work is really specific, is really detailed, everything is finely tuned, and everything is built up to make the big picture. But to be a director, you have to maintain simultaneously the, the microcosm and the macrocosm. You've got to be aware of the, the grain of sand as, as well as the, the whole beach. And it's one of those sort of exasperating um, disciplines that you can only learn, I think, about directing by directing, which is why it's so hard to, to break into. Can you think, and this is probably an unfair, I have no particular ability myself to summon anecdotes, so if this is an unfair question, just tell me, but can you think of an example from the 
creation of this movie where you were working with one of these very fine actors and you refined uh, with the actor a, a gesture, a comment, a movement across a room? Um, well, I can think, uh, I can think certainly with um, Liam and Laura, the, the scene, there's a scene early on in the, in the film where the two of them are talking over dinner and it really sort of lays out the proposition of the film uh, where um, Laura's character says, do you think it's, it's possible to live together with one person? And, and what it, it, she's saying is, uh, is it possible to be faithful to, to one person? Um, and during the, the shooting of that, it's so... It, um, the calibration of it was so uh, important that I guess there were sort of five or six takes of each shot, and in every take, uh, she did something different. Uh, and when we were editing it, you could see that you could make the film or make the scene mean something else if you if you took one approach ruthlessly through the scene, you could say something else about the character. And uh, it, was, it was a fascinating display of very, very skilled acting. And what were you trying to say about the character there? Well, I, I was trying to keep it deliberately mysterious, whether she had a special agenda asking, talking about uh, faithfulness in, in marriage. Um, and in, in the, the gradations of, of that, in some, it's perfectly clear that she has a special agenda. In the, in the interpretation that I chose, it's, it's an enigma, and it's certainly my aim that the enigma makes the audience want to know, the, the, the resolve the secret of that enigma. So it was crucial that actually too much wasn't given away. Interesting. Because you see Peter become unsettled by the yes. questions and the audience shares his sense of, of bafflement and concern, I guess. But where is his wife going with, these, with this yeah. interrogation? It, it, exactly. And uh, it, it, if, if, that hadn't, if that balance hadn't been right, then th that couldn't have worked as the springboard of the, the rest of the film. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the, 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 the kind of the, the grains of sand that you referred to a moment ago and the kind of obsession with detail. And I'm su I was surprised to hear you say it at the outset of this conversation that Laura Linney actually had to learn a great deal about the fashion business to play her character. She's a, she's a shoe designer in the, in the film, but I, I didn't sense that she spent a lot of time actually engaged in the trade during the movie. So why was that actually necessary for her? Um, it's... Every actor, people, people talk a lot about the method, um, and the method is, you know, it's a sort of cult, really. But the truth is that every actor has their own method of mm -hmm. approaching a part. Um, in, there's, there's very little about making of shoes or indeed um, uh, selling of, of, of shoes or design of, of shoes, but she wanted to know so that she didn't feel like a fraud when she was 
playing this character who did that for a living. Now, you may say, well, that seems crazy, and that's uh, it, it giving herself an excessive amount of work. How is it going to show on the screen? But in some way, it does show, it adds a, a, an authenticity that would be, in my view, different uh, if she had just walked into the studio one morning and I'd, and I'd handed her a page of the screenplay. Does anybody out there have a question or shall I keep going? Uh, good evening, Sir Richard. Uh, you're a very well-known stage director with several Laurence Olivier Awards. Uh, um, I just want to know how was your transition from stage to films, doing stage plays to directing films, and uh, how was your first movie like? How how it was? How was the experience like? And uh, what was your biggest obstacle? And um, what was the most important lesson that you learned while doing uh, films that you didn't learn uh, while you were doing stage plays? Um. Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. I, I was working in theatre uh, till I was in my mid-30s, and then pretty well out of the blue. I was, I was working with a lot of young writers, uh, a lot of new writers, doing a lot of new plays, and I was invited to go to BBC Television to become a producer of A Strand of Drama, uh, this was in the, the 70s, which specialized in new work and, and controversial work and, and sort of political work. And um, when I accepted it, I said I'd like to also direct on t television. So part of my learning experience was as a producer employing some very good directors, one of whom was my friend Stephen Frears. Uh, the first film that I directed for, for television was a film called The Imitation Game, which was set in the Second World War and written by the novelist Ian McEwan. What I found very, very hard to, to understand initially, although I knew it intellectually, was that in the theater, what you're doing is you have one point of view, uh, in the same way as you're looking at me and your point of view is not moving. Uh, it's a fixed point of view. In film, the director is choosing the point of view of the audience by changing uh, the shot, by moving the camera either towards the actors or changing the lens on the camera, by using sound, by using music, by using all the... Uh, all the tools that uh, a filmmaker has. So my instinct was to look at a scene in a sort of, you might say, theatrical way, look at the front of it. When I was at, uh, at the beginning of that film, I was doing a scene with, with two actors, and they were, they were standing, in fact, but standing, and I was standing looking at them with the cameraman. The cameraman, during the scene, walked off left me and walked around the back of the two actors and then he beckoned to me to come round the back of the actors and I suddenly saw what he meant and what he meant was that, that actually looking at the scene was much more interesting more or less on the back of their heads than uh, from the front and that's a tiny example of, of the change from 
theatre to film, but uh, and I've done quite a lot of film, most, mostly for television, but a few feature films, and, and quite often I have to think, well, what, where can you move the camera? How can you move the camera? Don't accept the, uh, as it were, the front view of somebody. You have to think of how to tell the story in the best way, and that means how to reveal uh, people to the audience rather than simply showing them. Um, those, there are gradations of that in the, in the theatre, but it's a substantially... You have to sort of unlearn everything you've learnt in the theatre to, to work in film, except that you're able... You spend a lot of time with actors, and although film acting is a very different thing to theatre acting, you know a common language of how to work with actors, how to talk to actors. You know what actors find difficult to do and what they find e easy to do. And you also know the bones of, of storytelling. You know how to tell stories. And that, after all, is, is the heart of, of any uh, dramatic medium. So uh, it's, it's a long road, and I can't say that... Uh, I mean, you may say, looking at any of my films, that they are clearly the films of a theatre director. Um, it's, it's a language that is, is hard to learn if you've spent a lot of time working in theatre, I think. Um, what are the limitations that you feel in film that you don't feel on the stage, or are there any? Um, film is very literal. Uh, you you put, a, put a point a camera at something and it sort of sees it's invariably uh, you think you're looking at reality, whereas in the theatre you know you aren't looking at reality. You know it's all make-believe and the audience has to supply the missing bit, the imagination, so that you can see in a, in a theatre performance, you know, the audience know that these are actors and know that uh, it's, uh, you know, that, that they were doing the same thing the night before. Uh, and yet somehow the imagination of the audience, you commit yourself, it's a, uh, a willing suspension of disbelief. You enter in the performance and you buy the conventions of the theatre. Whereas film, it, you're sort of intolerant of that because you want film essentially to reflect reality. And in that sense, they're very, very different mediums. Sir Richard Eyre, thank you very much. Uh, for your time. Thank you Thank all you. for coming. Thanks for coming.